Welcome back to another episode of Chasing the Apex. I'm your host, Sid Sudhir, and today I'm sitting down with Tino Belli, the director of aerodynamics at IndyCar. Tino has had a long and very successful career in motorsport, involving himself in both race engineering and design capacities. He started off his motorsport career with the March engineering team. There, under the guidance of Adrian Newey, he began work as an aerodynamicist working in the wind tunnel during the week. On weekends, he was also working as a co-driver for Robin Hurd in the British Road Rallying Series. As March Engineering morphed into a few different companies, Tino stuck along for the ride and was able to work on the Fawn Metal and LaRue's F1 cars. He then made the jump to what is now known as the Andretti Autosport IndyCar team. At Andretti, he won four IndyCar championships, two Indy 500s, and helped the team to 56 race victories. Since joining IndyCar in 2014 as their Director of Aerodynamic Development, Tino has worked on the all-important 2018 Universal Aero Kit and the Aero Screen in conjunction with Red Bull. If any of this sounds interesting, which hopefully it does, keep listening to hear it all from the man himself. Welcome to the show, Mr. Belly. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today, and I can't wait to delve into your amazing experiences within the fields of IndyCar and Formula One. So, to begin, let's talk about how you first got interested in the motorsport industry. In your interview with Marshall Pruitt, you said that you went to Imperial College in London because that's where Colin Chapman invented Ground Effect. So, is it safe to say then that you have found a passion for aerodynamics and racing at an early age? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, that's absolutely correct. Um, as I was born in South Wales, which is a rallying part of uh, the UK, uh, so. Um, Rugby player as a kid, uh, got a concussion injury when I was about 14, stopped playing rugby and uh, being of Italian heritage, as you can tell from my name, um, had to be a Ferrari fan, which sort of got me into the, the motor race inside. And um, when it came, once I, in the UK, we do uh, O-levels and A-levels and university. Um, when it came to pick university uh, aerodynamics was the big thing in formula one at the time colin had just uh, come up with the the ground effects which was as i say was all done at imperial college london so that became uh, my first choice university which i was very lucky to to get into uh, so um yeah it was all everything was geared to wanting to get into motor racing so after graduating, you landed a frankly awesome job at March Engineering. Um, at March, you spent time working on Indy cars, F3000 cars, as well as Group C cars. Um, I would say I know a little bit more about March's IndyCar program, so I suppose we'll start there. Um, what specifically was your job within the IndyCar department? Because if I'm remembering correctly, March supplied cars to multiple teams at the time, didn't they? Right. Uh, it's sort of an interesting story, which goes all the way back to my, my rallying roots. Um, when, when I was at Imperial College, I used to part, uh, participate in 12 car rallies with my road car back then and a friend of mine. And we sort of, we branched out into um, doing some uh, regional rallies and some national rallies. Uh, and in England at the time, road rallying really was on the roads. The roads were open to the public uh, and it was a, a, a big, a big series. Um, I. I actually, straight out of university, um, went into the nuclear power industry first as a stress analysis. So um, when you do aeronautical engineering, um, it's not all aerodynamics and fluid dynamics. A lot of it is lightweight structures, which are, again, very appropriate to, to racing cars. And, um, and finite elements was a very new um, discipline at that point in time. And... Uh, so I did a couple of years in, in the nuclear industry doing finite element analysis, mainly uh, concessions on um, components that had manufacturing defects that didn't meet the, the written code. Um, then I applied for this job at March Engineering, just as Robin Hurd, who was the uh, owner of March Engineering, he, he wanted to get into to road rallying. So um, I, took, uh, I took the job. Um, weekends and evenings, I was his co-driver um, on the rallies, and in the week, I used to do uh, the wind tunnel work. So um, I was really the first full-time employee just to run the aerodynamic, the engineering side of the aerodynamic 
department. So IndyCar, as you know, uh, at that point was uh, very successful for March Engineering. Um, and I worked for um, Adrian Newey, a little bit of a famous designer there. Um, and he, he was actually, he was over here in the US at the time working for, uh, he was Bobby Rahal's race engineer at True Sports. So um, we communicated by fax machine mostly. So he would send me lists and some, some sketches occasionally by fax machine. Um, I would, we would draw the parts, go to the wind tunnel test, fax the results back to Adrian, who would then sort of fax some other stuff, what to do with the next wind tunnel test. And literally everything, all the design work was, was done backwards and forwards by fax machine to the US. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I actually was going to bring this up as well, because the main reason I know anything about March Engineering at all is because I've read about some of Adrian Newey's experiences there at the team. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, actually, like, what were any engineering and or life lessons that you learned working with a with an individual like Adrian? Adrian, uh, exceptional talent. So he was um, a few years older than me, he'd already done Formula One with uh, Kopasuka, I believe. And he was really brought into March at the time they were hoping to get a BMW Formula One program. Um, and uh, that never materialized. So he, he got a good grounding in uh, Formula Two. He worked for the Works Formula Two team. Um, and so when I came in, um, Adrian was great because he knew he had a, and he obviously still does, has a very good all-round picture of um, a race car. Everybody thinks of him as an aerodynamicist, but you know he knows suspension geometries, tire dynamics. I'd say he's a vehicle dynamicist as opposed to an aerodynamicist. Um, and yes, I sort of uh, fashioned myself on that. So I uh, endeavored to get out of the wind tunnel a little bit and to the racetrack. Um, I got seconded in, let me see, 1987 to Craco, which was Michael Andretti was the driver. And um, I used to come over to the US like uh, beginning of January, stay over here pretty much until the Milwaukee race, which was always used to be the weekend after the Indianapolis 500. Um, I used to go back once a month to do wind tunnel testing. So basically, I spent like one week in every month in the UK wind tunnel testing. And then after Milwaukee, I flipped it around and I just used to come out for the races because we were concentrating on the design of the following year's car. But um, yes, Adrian was a, a great mentor um, and very, very intelligent. He was clearly going to go places right from the very beginning. Would you say that Adrian, like, uh, he kind of appealed to you as a maybe unconventional engineer? Because based on my readings, I, I kind of, um, I realized that he still is a bit more old school. He likes to still kind of draw stuff out and not necessarily do it on the computer. So was it kind of, were those all considered conventional um, things at the time? Or did he do things differently opposed to some of the other engineers that he worked with? Um, well, Okay, back back in the 80s, we didn't have computers to do anything, really. We base, we did the only thing we did on a computer back then was uh, some suspension geometries, which by today's um, standards was very rudimentary. Yes, we would check camber change and roll center heights and things like that uh, with a very simple um, computer program. Uh, everything else was was drawn by hand. And um, so he, he's basically kept that on, you know, learning 3D CAD, especially in the early days, was massively time consuming and was actually um, probably uh, inhibiting creativity for a long time. Right now, it's got to the point where it allows you, to, it enables creativity. Um, but early CAD was... Um, was really a hindrance to creativity. So I can see why he sort of uh, didn't embrace it because just from the period when he was in control of these uh, uh, projects, 
and um, and he's a very very creative person, and so you don't want something holding back your creativity. So um, so now he's seen as being very unconventional, but you know he's in his sixties and gets harder to take on to to absorb a lot of these new technologies as you get older. So you need to um, delegate that work, and I think he's a very good delegator. Um, he gives a, a lot of responsibility to people who um, are prepared to take that responsibility. Um, he doesn't he doesn't shirk the responsibility himself. He knows that he's the ultimate arbitrator, but um, doesn't mean that he's not going to let other people be creative. He'll just like marshal them, or he used to just marshal them in the correct direction. Keep them on the straight and narrow. If I may, I want to talk a little bit more about March engineering as a whole. Um, coming from my more modern perspective of F1 and motorsport, March seems to be a team run, nothing like teams of the present. Um, I say this mostly because March was involved in pretty much every class of motorsport one can think of. Was that sort of environment perfect for someone who is relatively fresh out of college, looking to learn as much about motorsport as possible? Yeah, great, great opportunity for, you know, so, so many engineers came through that school of engineering because um, Robin Hurd, who owned March Engineering, he, he, he is the one who started that um, attitude of giving people responsibility. So he was prepared to give, uh, you know, young 20-year-old engineers responsibility of these what would be considered multi-million dollar projects these days um and you know when you get that responsibility you learn quick yeah you learn from your mistakes there was a a lot of learning from mistakes but um you were never chastised for trying um to do things uh better and more modern more modernly than um than the others and so it was a very competitive environment and yeah lots and lots of opportunities for young engineers some somewhat similar to to delara right now you know delara um have a great bunch of engineers there lots of opportunities for young engineers probably more marshaled now than we were back in the day because motor racing has moved on from you know like a, a garage business we used to design cars with three or four designers really and now as you see it's it takes a lot more because you have cfd fea uh structural tests that have to be performed um you know in indycar we have all sorts of aerodynamic stability tests that have to be performed on every design to try and make sure the cars don't um, don't flip over in, uh, when they spin at 230 miles an hour. You know, the aerodynamic forces are, are huge and we've got to try and keep them on, on the ground. Um, so there's just so much more um, to, to, to design now that requires a lot more people. So probably young people don't get quite as much um, of an overall grounded anymore. They tend to be more channeled into more specialist areas, even even in big constructors like Talara. And, you know, as you go down the formulas, there's still a lot more checks and balances than there used to be. So I know you just mentioned there that at March, there was a pretty innovative environment to begin with. But um, the 1980s in general were a time where were a time where um, rule books weren't so thick just across all of motorsport, right? So would you say that because of that, compared to maybe some of the design work you've done more recently, you felt more enabled to think outside the box, get creative and try something new? Yeah, I sort of grew up in this, you know, new era of aerodynamics where aerodynamics became the dominant force on all race cars, um, which was a great opportunity. And what happened for well, some of the, the great engineers before me that came before me, they sort of got left behind in that period, which made it a great opportunity for young engineers. Um, so, 
the rules, yes, were a lot less prescriptive. We went through, let's say, Formula 3000. We went from full ground effect Formula 2 cars to flat bottom um, Formula 3000 cars. And then, you know, Formula 1 went through the step flat bottom. Now they've come full circle and they've gone full ground effects again. So lo lots of things to go through. Um, but yeah, it was a very, it was, it was fun. It was good fun. Also working in small groups, you had, you had to be more than just an aerodynamicist. You had to understand the suspension geometry and the compromise that you were putting into the suspension, particularly in IndyCar. We've always raced on um, uh, bumpy tracks, you know, Formula One race on super smooth tracks. So their aerodynamics is 100% that's not, I'll say 100, but 90% dominant on their aerodynamic. We race at some very, very bumpy street courses, some very, very bumpy ovals like Iowa. Um, and then we run on some very, very smooth racetracks like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Barber Motorsports Park. Um, so, and that's always been the case. And so you had to have uh, empathy for, for other parts of the car as well as just your main discipline. Moving on from your time at March, you then went on to design F1 cars for both the Fawn Metal and LaRue's teams. Um, LaRue's in particular is interesting enough that we could have a whole tangent about them, but in the interest of time, um, were you designing mainly the aerodynamic packages for these cars? And how much of a challenge was it moving from Indy cars to F1 cars? Um, so, so, in this whole period of time, I was still working for Robin Hurd. It was Robin Hurd who sort of, he sold March and moved on to the Fon Metal Formula One, which then morphed into the LaRue's Formula One. Um, it was essentially the same group of people. So a lot of the March engineers and um, managers and uh, even some of the some of the staff were were the same ones as moved over so it was quite it wasn't uh, a complete change it was a little bit of a change in um i had worked on formula 3000 cars which were this, basically the same regulations as formula one up to that point obviously we didn't you don't put as much effort into a uh, Formula 3000 car that you put into a Formula 1 car. But we were a very small um, Formula 1 team. So uh, I think at the time we were um, seven engineers. Uh, we had uh, what I'll call a manager slash accountant. All of the manufacturing was subcontracted. We did all of the manufacturing in the UK for Fon Metal and LaRousse. Um, and then the parts were shipped to Italy and then France and uh, the race team ran them from there. But we supplied the race engineering staff. So we went to the races and actually engineered the cars as well. And as you say, like, you know, that was done with a, a staff of seven engineers. And at that time, most Formula One teams were probably probably up in the 45 to 50 um, engineer numbers already. So um, it wasn't it wasn't too far off what we had done before. We just had to stay within within the budget that we had available to us. Would you say that in some ways designing an aero package for an Indy car is a bit more difficult than an F1 car just because you have to design an Indy car for ovals and regular circuits? Uh, yes, there's a lot more compromises in an in Indy car. So let's take uh, the current Indy car, the underwing, the side pods, the monocoque, the engine cover, um, the gearbox, the underwing. They're all common for racing on the road and street tracks, the short ovals and uh, the super speedways. Like that. And, and Indianapolis is its own super speedway. So... If you take Texas, it has a very different set of dynamics to the Indianapolis 500. So there's a big compromise. The only thing that we, we change um, from one track to the other is the front and rear wings. 
Um, obviously, Indianapolis 500 is the crown jewel. So um, we have more targets for the Indianapolis 500. So basically uh, qualifying speeds have to be uh, fast enough to be um, enticing to the fans. Um, and then we basically turn that into a road and street car um, by bigger front and rear wings. Um, then you've got the um, large range of suspension travel that we have because of the bumpy tracks. And so the aerodynamics have to be a little bit more forgiving for big ride height changes. Um, so yes, it, it, it is difficult to hit all of the targets with, uh, with one basic set of bodywork. Um, the other thing you have to remember is, uh, is the crashes. So uh, we have very large crashes at Indianapolis. So when you crash at 230 mile an hour, you know, our, our minimum cornering speeds in qualifying are 223 and our top speeds 242, something like that. Um, so even when you crash in the corner, the impacts are huge. And so everything has to be designed to um, absorb those impacts without injuring the driver. So we have very, very substantial side impact structures. Not many people are aware of. They're, they're not the FIA spec side impact structures. Um, our side impact structures can take um, far higher loads. Um, I believe we have tougher nose impacts and attenuate, attenuated impacts. And all of that has to be um, designed within that aerodynamic performance. So, so is yeah. that impact structure? Because I know I'm a bit familiar with the FIA's kind of mandates in Formula One, how every, there's kind of that survival cell and everything's supposed to just kind of crumple around that. So is it like a similar philosophy? Um, so the monocoque is, uh, is designed to, yes, not break in um, any of these impacts. So the, the monocoque is, um, is very, very strong. Um, but we also, the, the lead edge of the side pods, that is all um, impact structure on our car. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we get crushable distance. So best thing for an impact, you know, you don't want, to, you don't want massive deaccelerations. So you need distance and you've got to make it crush slowly. So we use the whole width of the side pod to, to try and um, absorb that, the leading edge of the side pod to absorb that. Plus you'll also notice we, we pay a lot of attention to trying to prevent interlocking wheels. So our underwing comes to the um, full width of the, uh, of the wheel so that you can't get a, a front or rear wheel in between front or rear wheel in between the wheels of the other car so as you've seen when you get wheel contacts you get big launch by mechanical means so we try to prevent um, that interlocking and then we have the, um, the tire ramps which are also there to try and they're there to reduce drags to get the speed we need at the Indianapolis 500 qualifying but they're also there to um, try and prevent the interlocking of wheels while racing on track. Um, we, encourage, we encourage close racing with our drivers. And so therefore we've got to try and protect them from um, the consequences of getting it slightly wrong. So just to fast forward a little bit in the timeline of your career, in 1999, you joined Andretti. Um, I know you, you'd worked with Andretti before, um, but did joining Andretti, like the team, mark the beginning of your experience as a race engineer? Uh, no, my race engineering experience started my first time around with Michael Krako. Um, so that would have been like 1987 as, you know, a second engineer on the race weekend, what people would probably call an assistant race engineer now. Um, and then it's when, when I left 
IndyCar first time I went Formula One. I wasn't actually the race engineer that directly interacted during the session with um, the drivers in Formula One, but I was heavily involved in the race engineering side in Formula One because there just weren't many of us. Um, and uh, then I came back to IndyCar, I think it was 1995 with Teo Fabi and Forsyth. Uh, and I race engineered Raul Bozell in 97. So um, that was the, the reason I came back to IndyCar uh, in with Andretti in 99, it was really Team Cool Green at the time, was because of Barry Green. Barry Green had been the team manager at Craco back in 87. So I'd known him since then. I worked for him again in uh, 97. Um, then there was the IRL split and I had a young family, didn't want, didn't want to commute backwards and forwards from the UK. And he'd buried us, been asking me to come back and work. And the timing was just right in 99, family-wise, the age of my kids, uh, that we all moved, we all moved over to the USA. And, uh, and yeah, so that started, the, the Andretti thing started as Team Cool Green. That was uh, Dario Franchitti and Paul Tracy. And it moved into Andretti Green Racing when Barry sold the team to Michael and his brother, which then morphed into Andretti Autosport, which is as it is now. Did having some of that design knowledge help you with race engineering, or were they two pretty different disciplines? Um, so within the uh, team called Green, Andretti Green, Andretti Autosport, uh, IndyCar has always allowed a certain amount of design freedom. So um, it's less spec than, let's say, Formula 2. Um, and so we always did make some of our own parts. Uh, we, nearly all, we always did our own wind tunnel testing on the cars that we purchased. So it fitted in well for me. So um, I used to run the wind tunnel tests. Uh, again, it's a small group of people. IndyCar teams are, are typically, they're, they're getting bigger now, but typically you had a race engineer and an assistant engineer on every car and everybody had to be multidisciplined. So the, the guys who went to the wind tunnel were all the race engineers and the assistant engineers on the race weekends. So I think, I think growing, coming through racing in the uh, 80s, morphing into the 90s and even to now, um, it's been very lucky for me because I've always managed to work with small groups of people and, and been multidisciplinary. Um, I think in Formula One now, I would certainly struggle because I think everybody's just so um, expert at their area that there's probably not so many people who, who see the whole picture. Um, I think you see like James Allison who worked for me at LaRousse. Um, he had a he he had a ground in in um, all aspects of race car. Adrian Newey, I think Andrew Green who was started at Jordan in the 80s. You know they're still running these big teams um, because I think it's much harder to get that, that overall picture that you need to manage the engineers. I think, you know, there's, um, I think those big, big tech guys in Formula One, they're managing their groups of engineers and, and, dis and working out where it's most productive to allocate their engineering resources. I think that's where it's most important. Yeah, I mean, I know you've brought this up a couple of times now, and it's, I think it's a really interesting point to make because based on some of the engineers that I've gotten to speak with, I get kind of the similar sense that it's all about people specializing in different areas. And I actually know a few engineers that because of this, you know, they want to be like Adrian, they want to be like you and 
get into these different sort of um, roles, get right? So they'll actually have multiple jobs. So whereas at a Formula One team, they might be doing design work, then they'll go work on an LMP2 team as well to get that race engineering side so that they can get like that whole coherent image of what it is like to work in motorsport. Yeah, I would certainly, you know, when I speak to young guys, I encourage them to sort of get out of their comfort or their expertise area just so that they they can try and understand uh, the full the full picture. And I think that helps them in their area of expertise. We had a young engineer who came to work for us one summer. We were doing um, traffic CFD studies um, and he was a Southampton University um, graduate. And he ended up working at Ed Cup. He had an option to go to some Formula One teams, but in his words, he didn't want to be a, um, a CFD mesh jockey because, <laughs> you know, your starting point, I think, in a lot of those Formula One teams is that you take someone else's geometries and you turn them into the meshes and that's your job. And then you've got to work your way up. Um, he, he preferred the idea of you know, standing on the timing stand and um, uh, being responsible for if that car was going to run out of fuel or not, as well as doing the CFD work in the week, you know. So I think that's all very good to go out and get uh, experience, even even if it's not even as high as LMP2, you know, it can be, let's say you're in England, you just go to Silverstone on the weekend and help out a guy who's running club uh, I think you can get a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge from uh, even that level of racing. So just to go back to your time at Andretti a little bit, um, while you were there, the team won four IndyCar championships, including two Indy 500 victories. Um, so from an engineering perspective, what did you learn about the keys to success and the right way to manage a team of engineers? Um I have a very collaborative um, uh, way of engineering. So I, I believe, so when I first came to IndyCar racing, uh, there were a lot of single car teams. Um, Europe was always two car teams at that point in time. Um, so when I came over here, there were a few two car teams and but two car teams tended to operate as two one car teams. And I think I think you've seen that even in NASCAR until quite recently. So um, the most important part, and I think our success, our early success at Team Cool Green, uh, Andretti Green Racing, and Andretti was um, being very collaborative. So we started off with two cars. The whole team then, for you know financial reasons, went to three cars, four cars, and then sometimes even five cars at the Indianapolis 500. And um, if you can ensure that all of the engineers work well together, a lot, a lot of, a lot of times journalists go on about how drivers work well together. The drivers have to work well together if the engineers work well together, because the engineers collate all of the information. They understand everything that the driver's thinking and more because they should understand the vehicle dynamics of it. And if you get the engineers all working as a big group, you can now um, design experiments um, across multiple car advantage on race weekends. Um, you know, not all drivers can drive exactly the same type of car, but um, I can guarantee you they can all drive very similar cars. They're all very talented. Yeah, so most drivers need some small differences, which might be how hard they press the brake pedal and things like that. But typically, um, they can all drive a very similar setup at a very similar speed. So if you have collaborative engineering, um, all share information, they learn from each other, the engineers learn from each other and um, it's a recipe for success. And I think you're seeing that more and more across the IndyCar field now. It's, it's what I call a European mentality, which has now um, come to the USA. And I think you see a lot more in NASCAR as well. They're all working together in big teams. Jumping, jumping ahead a little bit again, um, in 2014, you joined IndyCar as the director of aerodynamics. 
One of your big projects since assuming this role has been the Universal Arrow Kit introduced in 2018. Um, can you walk us through why it was such a big deal and what specific improvements you were looking to make? So when I came in in 14, uh, 15, we introduced the um, manufacturer aero kits. So I came in to uh, police the manufacturer aero kits. The regulations had all already been written for the manufacturer aero kits. Um, so I just picked up on the trail end, tail end of that. Um, and it was quite an exciting period in time uh, because we had a Honda kit and a, a Chevy kit. And um, unfortunately, they weren't uh, very equal, which is bad for our series because um, we, want, we want everybody to have a chance of winning. Um, and they were very, very expensive because the manufacturers made them super, super light uh and uh flimsy and then when we would have accidents we'd have a lot of debris or debris creates um long cleanup times under yellow it's not what we want we want to have quick cleanup times under yellow and get back to racing so when jay fry came on board and bill pappas they wanted to basically go back to, and, and the manufacturers, it was costing the manufacturers a lot of money to um, to have their aero kits and develop them. They all wanted to go back to uh, uh, this uh, universal aero kit. Um, the decision was made very, very late. So um, the decision was made like in November. So we had um, basically 14 months to uh, hit our targets, design, manufacture. So let's remember that when, because everybody runs the same kit, you've got to manufacture at least 66 sets of kits of body parts. So it's not like Formula One where they have to make two, maybe three, so they can keep evolving it. Um, so this, the sign-off has to be completed quite early to make all those kits in time and give people a chance to test them before the season starts. And we added in a lot of stuff to the kit. So we had a qualifying speed target. We wanted to remove the wheel guards off the back of the wheels because they weren't functioning as origin as people originally intended. We needed to get the weight down. We wanted the bodywork to be uh, a little bit more robust such that it didn't splint and break off. Um, so we did a lot of a lot of stuff. The car only got into the wind tunnel um, the beginning of 2017. Um, designing the speedway, hitting the targets for the speedway was uh, difficult. So I don't think really that took us probably um, very roughly until um, March to get that correct. Um, and, and this was a very intense time working with Delara. We were in the wind tunnel one week in every three. Um, and then we had to do the road course kit and everything had to then be track tested and signed off. And I think we managed to sign everything off by August. So really from um, January to August, we designed all of the uh, Universal Aero Kit, manufactured it, track tested it, signed off on it, and got into mass production. So so what was your relationship with Delara throughout this process? Because they are technically listed as the manufacturers for IndyCar. So were you a sort of aerodynamic advisor for them? Yeah, I worked very, very closely with them. So we, we'd set all of the targets. Um, Obviously, you know, the targets, targets are um, a bit of a living animal. Um, they're not necessarily achievable. And so there was aerodynamic targets, as I say, structural targets and weight targets and weight distribution targets um, and crashability targets. And um, there was, um, we had to do, they had, they had to do CFD at five degrees nose up to make sure the car doesn't flip over if we run over debris. We do CFD at 90 degrees of yaw for when the car's spinning to make sure it doesn't flip over. 
you know, the 135 degrees of yaw, because that's technically where um, it should flip over. And we also do it at 180 degrees of yaw going backwards, because if you remember with the manufacturer aero kits, that's where they did flip over. So while you're in the wind tunnel trying to design this straight ahead um, aerodynamics for speed and raceability, you've also got to check all of these components that they don't make the, the car flip over if it spins. And as you can imagine, there's compromises on all of this. And so um, the engineers in Italy were busily and oh, the other thing we had is that we wanted it to look nice. So we had uh, aesthetics in, in this picture as well. So we had stylists, Chris Beattie involved and um, my wife looked at the styling a lot and criticized it here and there. So um, all of these compromises had to, um, someone had to adjudicate on the compromises and that came down to us at IndyCar. You know, Delara didn't, would present us with um, with options, uh, we did help steer the options. We did come up with some of our own ideas as well. As I say, it was it's collaborative. We work very very collaboratively with Delara, and um, I went to Italy for one week in every three. So every time the car was in the wind tunnel, I went over. I worked with the aero guys. We talked. We plans we cfd guys would come in and say what the problems were with stability the structural guys would say we're having we can't quite achieve this but we can achieve that and you know it was it was, it was just a, it was a wonderful experience with a lot of great engineers from lots and lots of disciplines and um and luckily it worked out very very well you know that that's the acid test at the end of it whether it, it achieves what you want to achieve and it achieved um probably 90 to 92 percent of what we want to achieve um you'll never hit 100 unless you can start absolutely from scratch and to be honest even if you start from scratch you introduce the possibility of adding in mistakes unintended mistakes which um, might keep you at about 92% anyway, if you do a good job. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a great challenge, which is what every engineer wants to work on, right? Um, well, I want to take a moment to compare F1 and IndyCar, if I may. Uh, I've noticed that on your LinkedIn profile, you've posted many articles explaining why IndyCar is a great sport to watch, which is understandable, considering your background. Um, but I have a few questions for you. Um, first of which, do you disagree that Formula One is a more interesting sport from an engineering perspective since it isn't a spec series? I know that you were talking about how IndyCar isn't a complete spec series, but maybe relatively speaking. So, um, you know, let's get this clear. I'm, I'm a race car fan first and foremost. So I like World Rally cars, I like WEC, I like IMSA, I like um, IndyCar, I love Formula One. You have to if you come from Europe. Um, NASCAR, maybe not so much, but uh, that's just because I haven't probably, I'm sure if I got involved in NASCAR, I would find that a great engineering challenge as well. I think the engineering challenges are diff different. Um, I think, you know, designing a car from scratch every year is very, very exciting. Uh, it's very exciting to be part of a team that does a car from scratch every year because you know, it's um, it's like sitting exams, you know. Um, it's the acid test at the end of the day of whether you know what you're doing and and, and uh, whether you're good at it. So they get their exam through the season. They know whether they've been successful or not, whether they've got to improve. Um, I'm not, you know, um, in America, we like... Um, we like, I think most people like the close racing type of things, or um, let's call it the more entertaining. Um, let's be clear, at IndyCar, we don't, we do not ever um, interfere with the rules. The rules are the rules. 
everybody knows the rules going into the race and at the beginning of the season. And if we have um, a race that's not very entertaining, we don't go and throw a caution flag to try and make it entertaining or anything like that. The only time a caution flag will come out is um, when it needs to come out. And, and usually we, we, are, we are very, very strong on safety. We are very, very strong on uh, protecting our safety workers who go out on the track. We're very, very strong on protecting our uh, crew members. And so as a consequence of that, sometimes the yellows do affect the race outcome, but it's, it's an element of chance that is dictated by the regulations. So for me, when I watch Formula One and people go about numbers of passes and stuff like that, I don't watch Formula One for passes. For me, Formula One, when if someone wins a world championship by winning every race in the season, I think that's great. They've just kicked ass. They've done their job. Um, let's applaud them rather than criticize them. Um, so I love I love Formula One. I love that whole um, engineering technical experience. But um, it's it is and it has been for a while now uh, akin to aerospace you know you it's aerospace where you see your the results of your work every year whereas in aerospace you're probably going to see it every 15 years or so um you know you people are pigeonholed into to speciality areas and if that's not your cup of tea if that's not what you want to do, then a series like IndyCar is, um, and probably, you know, IMSA, um, you're going to get a much more um, inclusive um, involvement in more than one aspect of, of a vehicle uh, dynamics. And not only vehicle dynamics, um, you know, fuel strategies, uh, interpretation of data, you know, it's, IndyCar is like Formula One was probably in the early 80s. Um, you can get an all-around all picture. So Horses for Courses, I think they're both great. Um, the Indianapolis 500, if any listeners have never been to the Indianapolis 500, you have to do it. It is, it is still a jaw-dropping experience. So, um, you know, what would I put on my list of race car events that everybody should probably try and see in their lifetime Indianapolis 500 top Monza when Ferrari are doing well just because the crowd is uh, absolutely incredible Silverstone has always got a very good crowd but it's not quite the same as um, as Monza um, Le Mans great experience to go to to Le Mans for a 24-hour race I, I'm not a 24-hour race fan because I can't usually stay awake that long but uh, you know it's it's one of the experiences that you need to do um, yeah Long Beach is a great street track race it's part party atmosphere um, there's this there's something for everyone in motor racing I've spoken with drivers who have told me that IndyCar could do a better job of making their races a spectacle outside of, you know, the Indy 500. Um, similar to kind of how their Grand Prix in F1 where they bring out celebrities and they're usually racing in these very exotic places. So do you agree with that criticism? Um, I don't, so I don't ever really look at it that way. Um, uh i'm not a i'm not a celebrity type of person uh so i don't watch any of these celebrity shows on tv um i'm not a halftime show fan i did watch a halftime show the super bowl yesterday i didn't watch the game i'm not unless my team's in it i'm not uh, a great fan of uh, nfl um i you know, we do have at most of our events or a lot of our events, uh, bands playing for people who are interested in that sort of thing. Um, I just look at racing, me, uh, it has to be, it, 
I think people talk too much about the entertainment side of it rather than the racing side of it. I think the intention of every driver and every engineer and every mechanic on a race team should be to go out and kick ass every race rather than even thinking about the entertainment. And then the entertainment side of it comes down to us trying to mold the regulations to make it um, such that they can compete uh, with each other and win races, whether you're a small team at the back or um, Penske, Andretti or Ganassi at the front or AMSP now. Um, you know, we, we want them. We understand that the bigger teams are going to win more races than the small teams. That's just because money talks at the end of the day. But um, certainly in IndyCar, we concentrate on it. Such a, a small team can pull off a surprise every now and then. Um, I don't see how you can sell sponsors on running last all the time. Um, they have to have some hope of having some some success. Have you found it more enjoyable working for the regulatory body of IndyCar or working for an actual IndyCar team? Um, they're all, it, it's, um, it's different, but, you know, I was about to say that working for a race team is more stressful, but that's not not necessarily the case when we brought out the UAK 18 or we did the uh, aero screen with Red Bull. Um, the timeframes were real racing time timeframes. You know, it's not like we had extra time to design the parts and get them made. So there was always a chance that we were going to make mistakes or have an unintended consequence. Um, so, um, so no, on a race weekend itself, working for a regulatory body, body is less stressful, but on a year by year basis, it's, it's, they've both got their challenges and they're both, they're both pretty stressful. So looking back at all of your time in motorsport thus far, what has been a favorite moment of yours? Uh, St. Pete, when we finished one, two, three, four. Like uh, that, you know, um, you can put in there. I know, I know most IndyCar people will say winning the Indianapolis 500 is the most important. Um, and it is very important, don't get me wrong. And they say winning the championship, but to when you have four cars in a race of the standard of IndyCar and you finish one, two, three, four, that is pretty special. Hey, well, that sounds like a great moment to me. Thank you so much for volunteering some of your time to be here with us today, Mr. Belly. Um, I certainly enjoyed being able to learn from your experiences, and I hope that sometime soon I'll be able to catch you at the track. Sure, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing the Apex. I hope you found Tino to be an interesting guest and enjoyed our conversation. As someone who is interested in aerodynamics myself, Tino was a great person to talk to and I certainly learned a lot from him. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to also follow us at ctp.motorsport on Instagram and at sidtalksf1 on TikTok. Thanks again.